keep that passage in Matthew open. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word, you might meet with us. Speak deep into our hearts, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is Jesus? Or perhaps an even more important question, who is Jesus to you? It's a question that we asked the children at the start of Holiday Club. And my group of five and six-year-olds came up with a variety of answers. He's our friend, a brother, a teacher, a miracle worker, the son of God. They're all true answers, but if I was responding to that question, I'd want to add, he's my saviour and my lord. How you see Jesus alters how you respond to him. And not only that, it changes the way that you live your life. Because those who see Jesus most clearly follow him most closely. So this morning, I want to look at this passage, examine the things that Jesus does, think about the titles that are used to describe him, and I'd like you to think about how would you answer that question, who is Jesus to you? And then I want to ask, if this is who Jesus is, what does it mean to follow him? So first of all, who is Jesus to you? Perhaps you see Jesus as a healer. Our passage today opens in verses 14 to 15 with Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law from a fever, possibly malaria. We see Jesus' authority and compassion. He reaches out and he heals her simply with a touch of the hand. And her healing is instantaneous and complete. She's not, like, she's not weak like we are after illness. She gets up and she waits on Jesus straight away. And in verse 16, Jesus heals the demon-possessed and the sick. This time he doesn't even touch them. His word is all that's needed. Jesus, I'm pretty sure, would have been tired. He's surrounded by many people. And Matthew tells us that he healed all of them. But in verse 17, Matthew makes it clear that to see Jesus simply as a healer is to lose sight of the full picture. As we've already thought, he's the one who rescues us, the one who sets us free. Matthew records the healings, and then he takes us to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. At a first glance, if we're honest, that verse probably seems a bit out of place. 
Peter, in his first letter, quotes from this passage in Isaiah when he's speaking about Jesus dying for our sins. And Matthew seems to be referring to physical diseases rather than sin. But we need to look at that verse from Isaiah in its full context to appreciate what Matthew is saying. Isaiah 53 speaks of God's servant, the completely innocent one who dies in our place, the suffering servant who endures beyond description but who's ultimately victorious. Matthew wants to take our minds to the cross where Jesus died to set us free from sin. He's pointing to Jesus' total victory over sin and death. One day, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. If Jesus is simply a healer, then he's got no claim on my life today. But if he has the power to set me free from sin and death, he can change my life completely now and for all eternity. Maybe, though instead, like the would-be follower of Jesus in verse 19, you see him just as a teacher. The man approaches Jesus. He's a scribe or a teacher of the law, And he recognizes that Jesus is an outstanding teacher. He wants to learn from him. But as we'll discover later, Jesus wants him to know that being a disciple means far more than that. For anyone who's committed to following Jesus, it's a true but an inadequate description. Even Richard Dawkins admits that Jesus was a great moral teacher. So, who is Jesus? Well, if you look at verse 20, we've got Jesus' own answer to that. He uses the enigmatic phrase, son of man. It's his favorite way of describing himself. In Matthew's gospel, we find it on the lips of Jesus 29 times. And in this verse, it speaks of Jesus' humanity, of his weakness, He shares the uncertainty of our human condition. He's got nowhere to lay his head. But later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus also tells us that the Son of Man came to give his life. He tells us that the Son of Man will come in glory. He's pointing us to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the prophet describes one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, who's given authority, glory, sovereign power, who's worshipped by men of every nation. If this is who Jesus is, then he's so much more than either a miracle worker or a teacher. In verse 21, we meet another would-be disciple. And this time, his form of address sounds more promising. In verse 21, he calls Jesus Lord. And yet, we're left feeling that possibly it's no more than a term of respect. The disciples come closer to its true meaning 
when fearing that they're going to drown, they cry out to Jesus, Lord, save us. It's a recognition from hardened fishermen that a man who trained as a carpenter can help them when they've reached their own resources on a lake that they know like the back of their hand. But Jesus recognizes that their faith in him is still deficient. He speaks to them even before he stills the storm. He chides them for being afraid. And if that word men in verse 27 includes the disciples, then we see that they still don't really know who Jesus is. All they can do is ask the question, what kind of man is this? And yet, in the stilling of the storm, Jesus provides the answer. He is a man. He knows what it is to be human. He falls asleep in a boat because he's tired. But he's also God. The Sea of Galilee sits 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains. So when the east wind blows in over the mountains, the storms come in and are sudden and violent. Matthew describes a furious storm whoops, with waves sweeping over the sides of the boat. The disciples, quite understandably, fear they're going to drown. But nobody has power over the sea except God. The Psalms tell us that. Psalm 89 verse 9 says of God, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And God does so with his rebuke. Psalm 104 verse 7, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Look at the end of verse 26. It picks up the same wording. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and the sea becomes completely calm. Jesus can do what only God can do. So who is Jesus to you? If you look at those descriptions of Jesus on the screen, I wonder which one is the answer that you'd give. Is he simply a healer or a teacher? Or is he the one who set you free from sin and death, the one who gave his life for you and will return in glory? Is he truly your Lord? If not, then I invite you, carry on meeting with us as we journey through Matthew's Gospel. As Giles was talking about the Discover course earlier, join it in October. That question, who is Jesus, is too important to ignore. In this passage, we find the word Lord on the lips of a would-be disciple. It's cried out by Jesus' chosen disciples. But at this stage, we see men who are struggling to really understand what it means to own Jesus as Lord and follow him. So I'd like you just to go back and look again at those verses 18 to 22 and see what Jesus teaches us 
about what it means to follow him. First of all, in verses 18 to 20, he tells us that it means counting the cost. We meet a would-be disciple. He's keen, enthusiastic, but he hasn't thought through what it means to follow Jesus. He wants to follow a prestigious teacher and learn from him. But Jesus' ministry involved traveling from place to place. It wouldn't be easy. I don't think Jesus is saying that following him involves giving up all our physical comforts. If you look at verse 14, you'll notice that even though Peter left his nets to follow Jesus, he still had a house. But Jesus does tell us in Luke's gospel that if a man wants to build a tower, he needs to first sit down and check that he's got the resources to complete it. Jesus doesn't want us to have that initial burst of enthusiasm and then to slip away when we realize what following him really involves. I wouldn't, for one minute, turn the clock back to the time before I knew Jesus. Knowing his forgiveness, knowing what it is to have him walking beside you day by day, is worth the cost. John Calvin once said, I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? I found everything in Christ. But if you're thinking of following him, you do need to ask yourself, are you ready, with his help, to embrace the challenges that might come your way? You will find yourself in a minority amongst your friends and workmates. It may mean giving up a relationship you know is wrong, perhaps being honest in the payment of your taxes. There may be aspects of your job that begin to conflict with your Christian faith. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16 that following him involves carrying his cross, following his example of servanthood and sacrificial giving of ourselves. I came face to face with the cost of being a Christian at the age of 18. During my years in the sixth form, I knew I was beginning to slip away from God. And so when at the end of my A-levels, a non-Christian young man asked me out, I said yes. Someone to go out with over the summer sounded fun. I wasn't intending to start a long-term relationship. But that relationship did continue. I found myself falling in love. I began to realize that it would probably end in marriage. But I'd also, as a student, joined the Christian Union realized afresh how much Jesus had done for me, recommitted my life to him. And I knew deep down that I couldn't share the rest of my life with someone who didn't share my faith. And so I prayed what I think was probably the hardest prayer I've ever prayed in my life. I handed that relationship to God and in tears offered to give it up. 
God was very gracious to me because with that prayer came an overwhelming conviction that my boyfriend would become a Christian. And he did. And I've been very happily married to him for the last 38 years. (laughs) I can see him looking embarrassed up there. (laughs) But there are plenty of people who God has called to give up relationships, prestigious careers, home comforts, to follow him. Are you willing to put him first? Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but God is calling you to hand an area of your life to him and to follow a new path. Because following Jesus does mean counting the cost and wholehearted commitment. That's what Jesus teaches the second would-be disciple in verses 21 to 22. At first, Jesus' words sound pretty harsh, don't they? Especially for a Jew who would be expected when someone died to bury them within 24 hours. For the eldest son, it was an obligation that superseded all others. Even reciting the basic Jewish prayer was no longer a requirement. But Jesus says those shocking words we find in verse 22, let the dead bury their own dead. Or in other words, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Jesus is saying, following me is more important than anything else in your life. Some people think this man's saying to Jesus, let me go away and take care of my father until he dies. I'll follow you sometime, perhaps in a few months, a few years, but not now. If that's you, then think about the challenge of Jesus' words. But I can't help wondering if that interpretation loses the full impact of what Jesus is saying. If you think about it, there are times in our lives when even things that seem vitally important are suddenly swept away for something that becomes overwhelmingly urgent. I still remember the day my youngest son started school. He was due to start in the afternoon. And if you'd have asked me beforehand, I would have said that absolutely nothing would stop me from spending the morning with him. But that morning, as I was walking my eldest son to school, I had a phone call from my father. My mother had suffered a major heart attack. She was being taken to hospital in an ambulance. He didn't know whether she was going to make it. I literally dropped everything, handed my children over to a friend, and dashed home to get my car. Jesus is saying that following him is of such primary importance that things that we once thought were important suddenly aren't. Following him reorders our priorities. And he's not saying we shouldn't care for our families. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reminds a rich young ruler of the command to honour your father and your mother. 
But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus also says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know what relationship or call on your time you're tempted to put before Jesus. But he does teach that our love for him and our commitment to him should supersede all others. Counting the cost and wholehearted commitment are not always easy. They're only possible when we have a clear vision of who Jesus is. That's why I began this morning by asking that question, who is Jesus to you? Because the more clearly we see him, the more we realize that he alone is worthy of our love and our lives. He's the one who died in our place. The one who freely gave his life so that we might know freedom from sin and death, the one who's truly God and yet who seeks a relationship with you and me. In the introduction to his book, Knowing God, Jim Packer writes, we're pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy God. In his book entitled Radical Discipleship, John Stott takes that a step further and he writes, we're pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy Christ. He goes on to say, if only the blindfold could be taken away from our eyes, if only we could see Jesus in the fullness of who he is and what he has done, nothing is more important for Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. It's a vision we gain as we read the Gospels. Why not take up Richard's invitation to pick up one of the study guides on Matthew from the bookstore? Or try reading Isaiah 53 that speaks of Jesus' sacrifice for you. Spend some time meditating on Paul's description of the supremacy of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And let's pray that God will enlarge our vision of Jesus Christ that he'll deepen our understanding of everything that he has done for us. And in turn, may we love him more and commit ourselves more fully to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Please forgive us for the times when we put other things before Jesus. We ask that you will help us to see him more clearly, to know what he has done for us and to see him in all his fullness. 
and in turn, please give us a deeper love for him and increase our desire to follow him more closely. In his name we pray. Amen.